Hello and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, the podcast about classical stuff that you should know. And I, boys, I brought back the hello. The hello is back. By the oft popular demand. By popular demand, the yeah. oft insulted greetings that I give. Hello. Um, my name is Graham Donaldson, and I am joined here today with uh, Thomas Magby the first. You said you wanted to be the second, but... Yeah, yes, yes, hello. Middle name, what was your middle name? Fletcher? Fletcher is my middle name. Fletcher. And then Arthur Jan Hannenberg the second, the arty farty himself. I am the second, actually. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, boys, it is good to be here with you. It is a beautiful day out. The sun is shining. The birds are chirping. It's overcast. There's a cool, crisp nip in the air. Like 40, I think it rained a little bit. I would degrees. say it is a perfect day for a wedding. Wouldn't you, Hannenberg? Oh, my word. Donaldson, proud of you. Oh, gosh. So today... Uh, no, no, I feel bum, bad even bum, saying bum, it. Really? Bum, well, that's just bum, so sad. Bum, bum, that, is this what the weather would be like on the, measure, is... on the marriage of heaven and hell? <laughs> no, that, that's the way it's introduced. Yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, okay, so I'm talking about William Blake and his big poem, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. <laughs> Why are you laughing? It's so romantic. Oh, how good your joke is? Mm-hmm. So this, this poem, it's it's a thing. But who's William Blake? Tell me about him. And so here's a, a cursory explanation of the man himself. So he lived the years 1757 to 1827. So relatively recent, last few hundred years, as far as the classics go. We like to stick to older stuff around around these parts, but he's fairly recent. Uh, he was the, so he lived the ripe old age of 70. He was the third of seven children two of whom died in child in, you know, infancy. Uh, he, he grew up to kind of be an engraver. He was imp- always impetuous as a kid. He learned to read and write. And then is that in- a necessary quality for an engraver? No, I just, well, what I'm saying is that he didn't have a normal education mm. because they sent him to drawing school instead. Ah, always one of those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So at the age of 15, he got apprenticed for seven years uh, to the, for the big sum of, want to take any guess about how many, how much money they paid to apprentice him for 52 years? Or not 52 years. 10 pounds. I just said it, 52 pounds. <laughs> oh, 52 oh, oh. <laughs> Seven years, 52 pounds. And so, so at the age of 21, he graduated and became a pro engraver. During that time, he was sent by his professional, Bazir, to go and copy images from Gothic churches. Uh, he had also previously as a child copied some of the old Greek stuff. And the method he usually used was painting on a plate with a, an acid resistance substance. Mm-hmm. And then you would use acid and it would burn away all of the other stuff on this plate and leaving away the stuff that you had painted. Mm-hmm. So then if you wanted to print that, I think... You put ink over it. You put ink over it mm-hmm. and then you print it. The problem was you had to write everything backwards. Yep. Ah. Uh, so he had had to learn real good how to write all kinds of backwards. People still do this, that sort of acid-based... Uh, actually, we, my wife and I just did the East Austin studio tour this weekend, and we went to this one place, and he had engraved uh, metal plates. They're like thin little copper plates, and same thing. Uh, acid eats away the rest of the plate, and you've got this tiny little raised um, uh, image or mm-hmm. words or whatever, and then you put ink over it, and you put paper, and you press it, and then it leaves the impression on the... Of, uh, on the uh, on the paper. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and it can be really beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I, it's, it sounds laborious and useless, but really, if you think about how long it would take to make a single print of something, it's if true. you were just, I mean, it's, it was one incredibly plate, efficient. You can do it forever. One plate, you just make a gazillion prints of the same thing and you can make a whole bunch of money that way. Get to hang out with acid. That's fun. Yeah, there are <laughs> people who still do that, right? I can, cool. I can draw a comic book. There are lots of people who hang out with acid. That's, yes. or That's where I, I thought can, we were going with this. I can draw one poster, mm-hmm. make a whole bunch of prints of it, and make 30 bucks a print, and I'm looking at a, a load of cash for one picture I drew, That's right? True. So he would go to Gothic churches, including Westminster Abbey, where he would sit and he would copy things. And, and at that point, it was decorated with, you know, these murals and, and some, some statues and stuff. And that art there would have a big influence on how he later put up, put together his plates. And school children would come and visit while he was doing stuff in there. And he just hated those kids. Mm-hmm. Like they'd always make noise and bother him and make fun of him. And at one point, he actually knocked a kid full off some scaffolding and the Uh-oh. kid fell and like fell on the floor. And then he got him kicked out of the church for good. Wow. <laughs> like he revoked his entrance privileges, at least for a while. Uh, he got married. Oh, sorry. So in 1779, he became a student at the Royal Academy. And if I remember right, the Royal Academy, aren't those the guys who pretty much say what art is good art? 
I assume in, sounds in Britain. Sounds like it. Yeah, I think those are the guys who sort of say like this is good and this is bad, and they determine what gets hung where. And if you want to be anything, you gotta. I, I think it's the Royal Academy. Uh, you gotta be in with those guys. And you didn't have to necessarily pay to go there, mm-hmm. but you did have to provide your own materials. Mm. So he he went to the Royal Academy. Uh, he hated the unfinished fashionable painting style of the time. Mm. And he also really disagreed with the president of the whole place who said, who wanted to seek like general beauty and general truth, Mm -hmm. but not specified, just sort of in a generalized way. And he said, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Only specifics are worth praising at all. After that, he eventually started a print shop with a buddy and a lot of smart people, including the feminist Mary Wollstonecraft mm-hmm. and Thomas Paine, used to... Oh, sweet, yeah. na- sweet name. Thomas Paine? Yeah. You know Thomas Paine, right? He was yeah, a re- revolutionary, right? Mm-hmm. Common sense. Isn't that him? Yeah. So, Still a sweet name for revolutionary. Because he brings the pain. He brings the pain. He brings the pain. I, I bet he... I wonder how oh. many times he gave that joke when mm-hmm. he walked in the door. You bring the beer? Yes. Also, the pain. <laughs> like, ah, dang, dang it, Thomas. Uh, so they... He he was a big fan of revolution. He was down on slavery. He was pro-women. He was kind of a pro-free love kind of guy. He thought that marriage was almost like legalized prostitution, right? I can get my wife and I keep my wife. Wow. And, and he promoted a woman's right to be satisfied however she wanted to be. And so 1789, he must have been real excited during the French Revolution thinking like, the future is now. Well, I was actually just going to hmm. say that. So he was would wear caps in solidarity with the French Revolution. He was super into it. And the time he got disillusioned and kind of horrified was when the Robespierre and the, you know, the terror, the reign of terror came. And he was like, oh, that didn't quite work out how I had thought mm-hmm. it would. Yeah. Everything kind of went sour. They never do. Nope. Yeah. So he, I said he defended the right to women. Um, he was working on reliefs of Dante's Inferno when he died. He, feverishly working on Dante's Inferno. And so he was just kind of a an engraver, like a poet and engraver. And he didn't live necessarily this big, crazy life that some of our big figures live. He did art, and that's what he did. Uh, he, um, yeah, there, there are rumors that go around, around his marriage. Uh, as far as I know, he loved his wife until the day he died, right? She was weeping at his hmm. bed when he died and he's like stay i will be with you forever so they were together there's still some rumors about some like turbulent times when he was young and also other rumors that he wanted to bring somebody else into the party kind hmm. of have an open relationship style thing oh dear that she wasn't necessarily into but knowing uh, and those rumors are <laughs> supported by some scholars and downplayed it was the by 70s others. the 1770s yeah uh so it was just a little a little weird. He also, you should know, experienced visions all his life of God. They were usually religiously affiliated. So at one point he thought God had stuck his head through the window and he freaked out when he was a little kid and he would go to places and be like, here I see the angels and I see trees full of angels and they read my work and they encourage me to keep on working and I'm actually really popular in heaven. And so he... He's a big kook. A bit yeah, of a he's kook. A, yes. he's a bit, but he's a pious one, sort of. Kind, well, kind of. Until you read this poem. Until you read the poem. He's a weird kind of pious. He has some strange religious ideas, but he did have these religious visions always. He even had them while he was in uh, Westminster Abbey. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay. We'll move on from that. Okay. So I feel like that's a pretty good feel mm-hmm. of his life. So what I wanted to do is I, I thought about pulling pieces of this poem individually, which, by the way, was written as a, a response to another fellow who wrote Heaven and Hell. Uh, and it just it wasn't like he, he just wasn't really a fan um, this guy was named Swedenborg and had, and, and I've, I, it's a much larger work and I haven't had a chance to read it, but it basically just reinforces all the old notions, right? God is one. And, you know, he talked about marriage in heaven and what the angels are, but he wasn't necessarily writing anything bigger, newer, revolutionary. Well, Swedenborg, Swedenborg, Swedenborg flirts with some heresies. Swedenborg was also like this guy and probably because of Blake, Swedenborg was this guy that kind of launched some some directions in theology that began to take root in the 19th century that became known as like the liberal theology of the 19th century, right. which some of the fundamentalist theology of the early 20th century is, tr- is like a trying reaction. to counteract. So, um, 
Um, yeah, so Sweden, uh, man, it's been a long time since I'm, I've I'm read glad you know more about it, but because um, I don't know much about Swedenborg. But William Blake, so yeah, um, it's kind of almost even like proto psychology. Like William Blake doesn't the way he talks about God is less like God as this literal actual thing. Well, don't don't talk yeah. about him yet. We'll get right. we'll get to uh, Blake, but Swedenborg. Blake thought he was a bit of a dip. So he wrote this in response. It's called The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. If you want to look it up, you can find PDFs online. It is way past copyright date, (laughs) thankfully. Mm -hmm. And you can, it it is beautifully printed. There are these seemingly watercolor paintings that adorn every page. And it's it's pretty stinking gorgeous. But we'll talk about the actual content of it. So if you look it up, it's only about 27 pages long. But even even then, those pages are like only a few paragraphs. Some of them have really big pictures at the top. So this will go relatively quickly. So I thought we would just sort of read through and stop us as we go. We can have conversations. This might end up being a two-parter if you want. Not that I think the poem is necessarily good, but because, because there's stuff to talk about sure. in there. Yep. We can all read sections if you want. Oh, sure. That'd be nice. All right. So I will... Let's see. New heaven, new heaven, voice of the devil... Mm, I'm am j- just trying to figure out if we're switching where we should switch. We'll just do section by section. I don't have all of it in front of me here, so okay. All right. I have, well, I I, do you want to do you want to borrow mine? I, I I it's all right. I'm good. I have. There you go. I've got the Norton, which means I've got the only important ones. <laughs> good. Here you go. There is there is the copies. Thanks. Okay. So I will start with page page two. The argument. Rintra, do you know the reference? Rintra? Who's Rintra? Nope. Um, uh, for, I think it's something that that William Blake made up. If I remember correctly, he's like the Rintra. angry voice of the Old Testament or something like that. God bless you. Rintra is a character in William Blake's mythology representing the just wrath of the prophet. Yeah, so he kind of come up, later in his life, he came up with his, his own mythology system that was really complicated. So here, here's Rintra. Rintra roars and shakes his fires in the burdened air. Hungry clouds swag on the deep. I think this might be the first appearance of the word swag. Swag. Once meek and in a perilous path, the just man kept his course along the vale of death. Roses are planted where thorns grow, and on the barren heath sing the honeybees. Then the perilous path was planted, and a river, and a spring, on every cliff and tomb, and on the bleached bones red clay brought forth, till the villain left the path of ease, to walk in perilous paths, and drive the just man into barren climes. Now the sneaking serpent walks in mild humility, and the just man rages in the wilds where lions roam. Rintra roars and shakes his fires in the burdened air. Hungry clouds swag on the deep. This poem is a little strange, and I think... It's Bible fan fiction is what it is. So just like Paradise Lost? Well, it's also Paradise Lost fan fiction. It's, it's a little bit of both, but it's also trying to evoke the notion of contraries that he's going to talk about in a mm-hmm. second. So if you notice, right, uh, roses are planted where thorns grow, and on the barren heath sing the honeybees. So kind of pulling together the good and the bad to make one unified whole. At least I, that's what I think is happening here. Okay. Sorry, was all of this engraved? Did he do plates of all these? Yes. So the picture on the PDF I'm looking at, is that, is that it the looks, print? It looks painted. Okay. It looks like uh, oh, you like would, watercolors. But you would in, you would But you would make the plate and then you and would you would paint over it. Then you'd paint over mm-hmm. it. Yeah. That's cool. All right, Donaldson, you want to take the next piece? Is it uh, a new heaven? Mm-hmm. As a new heaven is begun, and it is now thirty-three years since its advent, the eternal hell revives. And lo, Swedenborg is the angel sitting at the tomb. His writings are the linen clothes folded up. Now is the, d- the dominion of Edom and the return of Adam into paradise. See Isaiah 34 and 35 Which chapter. I looked up and it's 34 is basically like God will destroy you all and tear your brains apart. And then chapter 35 is like things go real nice for you. Basically find the writings of God and all of that death and destruction will turn into blessing. Without contraries is no progression attraction and repulsion reason and energy love and hate are necessary to human existence so notice that contraries at least in my copy is like black and bold Mm -hmm. it's really this big thing Mm -hmm. without contraries is no progression attraction repulsion reason and energy i'd like to highlight that one right there he he puts those as opposites Mm -hmm. reason and energy right so attraction repulsion 
love and hate, and reason and energy, which are weird polars. From these contrary spring what is the religious what the religious call good and evil. Good is the passive that obeys reason. Evil is the active springing from energy. Good is heaven. Evil is hell. That's what I was going to ask if by energy he means like, yeah, he says it. evil is the act of springing. So energy is action and reason is like, what are the two different kinds of energy? Uh, kinetic and um, potential. Passive. Poten- potential. 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 So then reason is potential energy and evil are, <clears throat> yeah. Evil's kinetic. But yes. there he's equating evil with just the the active spirit of man mm-hmm. as opposed to the reasonable one. Yeah. I, I've always seen William Blake as kind of like the British version of as close to kind of an Eastern mysticism, yin yang as the West has ever got somebody who sort of looks at the world and says, there are two counterbalancing forces, forces that make up everything and holding them in tension and holding them in concert is like of utmost importance, which is sort of contrary to, Anyway, we can talk about We'll talk about later. the contraries as we go a little bit further. All right, Thomas, you want to take this next piece entitled The Voice of the Devil? I'm not sure I appreciate that. <laughs> the Voice of the Devil. All Bibles or sacred codes have been the causes of the following errors. That man has two real existing principles. Uh, is that supposed to be vis-a-vis? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Vis-a-vis a body and a soul. That energy called evil is alone from the body and that reason called good is alone from the soul that God will torment man in eternity for following his energies. But the following contraries to these are true. Man has no body distinct from his soul, for that called body is a portion of soul discerned by the five senses, the chief inlets of soul in this age. Energy is the only life and is from the body, and reason is the bound or outward circumference of energy. Energy is eternal delight. How many times, at what point can we chime in and say that Blake is a crazy person. I, I think if it hasn't become obvious to the listener, it should real soon. So the, those those three things are seem foundational to the rest of the poem, that man isn't a body and soul, he is a body, and that energy, or what we call evil, is like what comes out of our soul, and then reason is the outward bounds of energy, which I'm not entirely sure what that means. I mean, like, is that is that is it the put, putting the fences around energy? Yeah, I guess. I mean, this is sort of like the first poetic attempt at creating a theology of sinlessness. There's nothing that right. human beings do that are wrong. It's just um, we label like outsiders or the outside laws label things as wrong, but really, what human beings do is just sort of natural and right. Like he's very romantic in that sense. Yeah. So we're on page four, and he has already said basically there is no such thing as evil. Evil is just energy and man in action, and energy is eternal delight. So mm-hmm. everything we call sin is eternally delightful and has just been condemned. But Ruh-roh. does it matter that he's calling this the voice of the devil? Is he saying that the devil is saying these now, things? Now, as far as he's concerned, I think the devil is just the one who follows his energy. He's the rebel. God is the one who sets the law. Like, if I remember that, I remember him, I took a course on Blake in college a long time ago, and all I remember is, like, God is he who sets the stony law, and then the devil's job is to, like, break the law, and then you've got this this back and forth of law giving and law breaking that is the dance of life. A, a yin and yang, right? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. one, you can't really, like, follow your energy and break law if there isn't law, and there has to be some bounds set mm-hmm. upon it. I think that's kind of where he finds his balance. So, you can see how he would love the French Revolution. He's like, ah, oh, finally people are acting in their, in their energy, and they're breaking the stony laws of the past. Yeah. But, womp womp. Yes. <laughs> All right, so I got the next page. This is still the voice of the devil, by the way. And the picture for the audience is like a man doing a cartwheel with a sword and a horse also doing a cartwheel. Also doing a cartwheel and there's also a ball and some sort of blue bl- blob in the middle. You see that blue blob? I, I Do see you know it. what that is? Nope. Yeah, me neither. It looks like uh, an octopus blanket. I don't know. It's real strange. <laughs> Uh, okay. Is it coming out of the Knowing horse? William Blake, it probably is an octopus blanket. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, continuing is the voice of the devil. Those who restrain desire do so because theirs is weak enough to be de- restrained, and the restrainer or reason usurps its place and governs the unwilling. And being restrained, uh, and being restrained, it by degrees becomes passive till it is only the shadow of desire. The history of this is written in Paradise Lost. So here we go to the fan fiction bit, and the governor or reason is called. Messiah. 
And the original archangel or possessor of the command of the heavenly host is called the devil or Satan, and his children are called sin and death. But in the book of Job, Milton's Messiah is called Satan. For this history has been adopted by both parties. It indeed appeared to reason as if desire was cast out. But the devil's account is that the Messiah fell and formed of heaven or a heaven of what he stole from the abyss. All right. You guys making sense of this? Nope. Yeah. I'm having a real hard time well, putting this together. Uh, I did the, a lot of thinking on it. Two, but. There are two stories. So the one story is the one we often tell of God is good. Satan's cast out. He's bad. And so Blake is turning that story on its head to say that actually Satan was the Messiah. Isn't that what he's saying? The history of this is written in Paradise Lost and the governor or reason is called Messiah. Um, and the original archangel is then cast out. So isn't he just taking like a Satan Satanist interpretation of the fall? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's sort of called like the diabolical reading of Paradise Lost yeah, where that. you get the sense that Satan is in fact some sort of romantic hero against the... Um, the evil, or against sort of the injustices of what God has done. God has created order and created a place for you. And Satan does not want to be in that place, and he has this will, and he wants to break out of that place. And so that, um, the, 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 the readers of Paradise Lost who like that view place a lot of emphasis on Satan's ability to say no and see that as like the sort of counterbalancing action to God's yes. Right. Um, and, and then he fell and, then and formed a heaven yeah. of what he stole from the abyss. So basically that line where he says, the mind is its own place and can make mm-hmm. a hell out of heaven and a heaven out of hell. So let's take this place that we've got and make it our own little castle, mm-hmm. right? But like objectively, it's not a heaven. It's not a place that they want to be in Paradise Lost. But um, So he is reading it in a, like like you said, in a diabolical way. I don't, I don't know if it's the way that Milton intended. So he sees... So he sees God as like the creator of law and the Messiah as the force of reason. Yes. Jesus is the force of reason and Satan is the force of energy. And these two things fight. Or these two things are in contrast with each other, I think is what he's saying. Isn't he saying that reason is Satan in this one? I think so. The history of this um, is called Paradise Lost and the governor or reason is called Messiah. And the original archangel or possessor of the command of the heavenly coast is called the devil. Then what does he mean when he says, but in the book of Job, Milton's Messiah is called Satan? So I think when Milton's Messiah in this sense would be Satan, the original archangel. Yeah. So Milton's Messiah, Satan, is called Satan in Job. I feel like there's no there's no fruit to be had from from, from parsing <laughs> from out. Parsing yeah. out. <laughs> um, William Blake. But I, I would love to say that, but he awful, he spent an awful lot of time sure painting did. these things and I don't know the spirit in which they were composed. Crazy people are dedicated. Yep. So I'll continue and tell a memorable fancy and then you can take over. Okay. This is shown in the gospel where he prays to the father to send the comforter or desire that reason may have ideas to build on. The Jehovah of the Bible being no other than he who dwells in flaming fire. Know that after Christ's death, he became Jehovah. You following? <laughs> it's it's this. You see why mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to read this, mm-hmm. listener. I hope you're getting kind of the the kookiness that's here. I the first read of this, I had to go all the way through and sort of just get a feel for what he was saying, and it becomes clearer as you go as he kind of repeats. But if you try to parse, I'm not sure in this bit it's it's entirely clear, right? where he prays to the Father to send the comforter or desire that reason might have ideas to build on. So you have to have desire and energy, or else. Reason has nothing to work with. So he's justifying evil. So this is his, so this is why he needed to define evil as energy in the first place. Yes. Yeah. Okay. But in Milton, the father is destiny, the son, a ratio of the five senses and the Holy Ghost. Vacuum? <laughs> question mark? No, vacuum. no, not question mark. Exclamation that's that's point. Exclamation, yeah. Oh, it's, <laughs> oh, vacuum. Okay. So. And the Holy Ghost, vacuum. Yep. I'm, I'm, makes so much sense. And then note, a side note. The reason Milton wrote in Fetters when he wrote of angels and God and at liberty when of devils and hell is because he was a true poet and of the devil's party without knowing it. So that's his wow. little like, yeah, he's yeah. basically saying that when he wrote about God, he was restrained. But really, he when was, he wrote about the devil, he was like, that was the real Milton. Is this a thing that people think? Yep. So I think, yeah. I think his reading of Milton is more charitable. There are people who actually say Milton was intending Satan to be the hero. Oh, I don't even know about like, that. There's no way. I don't know if it's really? charitable. Um, this, but at least he gives, he, he says that Milton didn't intend to write the devil as the, 
the romantics the like re contextualize and reread this crazy reading into Paradise Lost that has become almost inseparable from Paradise Lost. It's kind of like how the prequels came and like destroyed the original Star, <laughs> Star Wars, Wars movies. Right? Yeah. And no and one now, can watch them without and feeling no one that can they watch were them. terrible. And uh, and sort of the new ones are kind of doing similar things. Like the romantics kind of did that to Paradise Lost um, in with this question of Satan being the hero. But they're, you know, they're sort of missing we've talked about this in the podcast, that they're missing the point of why why Satan is written to be someone that seems so sympathetic but is yet so gets so lost. Anyway, am I a memorable fancy? Yep. So he does this in in sections. So so far since the beginning, the we've had the argument mm-hmm. and then we had the voice of the devil, and now we're at a memorable fancy. The first memorable fancy. Yes, there are many memorable fancies. As I was walking among the fires of hell, delighted with the enjoyments of genius, which the angels look like torment, which to the angels look like torment and insanity, I collected some of their proverbs, thinking that as the sayings used in Nation Market's character, so the proverbs of hell show that, excuse me, show the nature of infernal wisdom better than any descriptions of buildings or garments. When I came home on the abyss of the five senses, where a flat-sided steep frowns over the present world, I saw a mighty devil fold in black clouds, hovering on the sides of the rock. With corroding fires, he wrote the following sentence, now uh, perceived by the minds of men and read by them on earth. And here's the proverb. How do you know but every bird that cuts the airy way is an immense world of delight closed by your senses five. So this big evil cloudy devil is like, dude, Birds are crazy. I got a proverb for you. <laughs> um, shall I read the more proverbs with hell? All right. So I think sure. we should give the... Yeah, you, you only had a little bit. Why sure. don't you do these first page of proverbs? In seed... So here's some more proverbs of hell. In seed time learn. In harvest time teach. In winter enjoy. Drive your cart and your plow over the bones of the dead. The road of excess leads to the uh, palace of wisdom. So those first two, not really sure where he's... That the first one, you know, in seed time, learn and harvest, teach in winter, enjoy. It seems like pretty standard stuff. Drive your cart and your plow over the bones of the dead. I don't really know where else you're going to drive them. Mm-hmm. And then the third one is where it starts getting intense. The road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. We got some Oscar Wilde things going on. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about Oscar Wilde and connection. I'll do that after sure. the Proverbs. Um, prudence is a rich, ugly old maid courted by incapacity. Poor Prudence. Yeah, seriously. And so, like, if you can't do stuff, that's when you, you're like, that's I'm you're prudent. prudent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He who desires but acts not breeds pestilence. And that sounds like it's right out of Dorian Gray. Mm-hmm. The cut worm forgives the plow. No clue. I don't think so. <laughs> Dip him in the river who loves water. Okay. So, another thing about excess. A fool sees not the same tree that a wise man sees. He whose face gives no light shall never become a star. Eternity is in love with the productions of time. That's um, that's a famous one that gets that gets um, quoted a lot. Really? Um, yeah. The busy bee has no time for sorrow. The hours of folly are measured by the clock, but of wisdom no clock can measure. You know, I feel like I should go back and alter your voice so that it's low and scary because <laughs> this is supposed to be parables of these hell. Are the, yes, these are probably right? just hell. All wholesome food is caught without a net or a trap. Bring out number, weight, and measure in a year of dearth. No bird soars too high if he soars with his own wings. A dead body revenges not injuries. Again, I'm not really sure where he's going with some of these. The most sublime act is to set another before you. <laughs> if the fool would persist in his folly, he would become wise. Oh, gosh. Nope. Ooh. Folly is the cloak of knavery. Shame is pride's cloak. The sound okay, Hanover, we were joking before we record this podcast that it sounds like like taken from that book, The Alchemist, that you and I recently read. Okay. And that Megby read when he was a child. Yeah. Um, yep. and it sounds exactly like the silliness of that book. Okay, so if you are an avid reader, you may have read a recent bestseller. Is it's, it recent? It's, it's like ten 90s? years old. Like ten years old. I, I, read it, 10s? I read it in high school. So it's well, called, so way more than ten years. It's called The Rude. Alchemist. And it's <laughs> exactly ten years, thank you very much. <laughs> Graham and I, Bees, are you on this train too? That it's not great? No, you were in high school 10 years ago? <sighs> Let me look up one. It's 2018. 
I was doing a master's degree 10 years ago. How old am I? And I was y'all, making coffee in Spokane. Y'all, the book came out in 1988. So it came out before I was born. How? The Alchemist is a novel by the Brazilian author Paulo Coelho that was first published in 1988. Yeah, anyway. Um, uh, we, I read it recently and... I first got past of my disgust, past my disgust that it had those rough cut pages that drive me crazy, uh, and then read it. Hey, and you teach you teach Fagels. Yeah, I know, and True. the rough cut pages drive me bonkers. Mm, okay. I hate them. Anyway, it's it seems to be drawing a lot of these things directly from Blake, and you actually quoted a, a Blake thing where he says like all eternity in a grain of sand. Yeah, that's not in, in Marriage of Heaven and Hell. It's in something else. But he almost takes that exactly into The Alchemist and says, like, if you look at a grain of sand, you will connect with the spirit of the world and all eternity. Right? So clearly this guy seems to have read some Blake. Mm-hmm. Blake boils down to, like, your natural human instincts should be followed full hilt, and the reason you don't is because of the rules weakness. of those around you and your own innate weakness. Yeah. Like... This is romanticism in its darkest sense. Uh, and it's sort of the modern ethos that we have today. Yeah, for so, sure. So actually, this next parable of hell speaks directly to it. This is... Prisons are built? Starting with prisons, mm-hmm. yeah. So Proverbs of hell. Prisons are built with stones of law, brothels with bricks of religion. Oh, gosh. The pride of the peacock is the glory of God. The lust of the goat is the... I am kind of uncomfortable reading this. Is it's, that, it's uncomfortable. So maybe if you have got kids, skip forward 30 seconds. I, did, right. uh, I don't know. What? Okay. The lust of the goat is the bounty of God. The wrath of the lion is the wisdom of God. The nakedness of woman is the work of God. Excess of sorrow laughs. Excess of joy weeps. The roaring of lions, the howling of wolves, the raging of the stormy sea, and the, and the destructive sword are portions of eternity too great for the eye of man. All right, so that, the pride of the peacock, the lust of the goat, the wrath of the lion, and the nakedness of woman, seems it seems like he's trying to redeem everything as being like from God and out of God and an outspring of imagination, right? So Blake was this big champion of the human imagination as above all. Mm-hmm. And so he's. it seems like he's trying to collect that everything. That genius is actually, it. like angels look think genius, when angels look at hell and they say, oh man, they're all miserable down there. It's actually because they are in the excess, they are in the like throes of genius. Yeah. They're um, really giving into their creative faculties. Mm-hmm. The This continues, the fox condemns the trap, not himself. Joys impregnate, sorrows bring forth. So a, a fox made a mistake and got trapped in something, but he's not mad at himself for getting caught, getting cr- going crazy. He's mad at the trap itself. Yeah. Let man wear the fell of the lion, woman the fleece of the sheep, the bird a nest, the spider a web, man friendship. Well, that, that one's awfully nice. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. The selfish smiling fool and the sullen frowning fool shall be both thought wise that they may be a rod. What is now proved was once only imagined. The rat, the mouse, the fox, the rabbit, watch the roots. The lion, the tiger, the horse, the elephant, watch the fruits. Some of these I'm not exactly sure what they're... It seems like his his real effective ones are sort of mixed with some other stuff, like about animals watching roots and other animals watching the fruits. The cistern contains, the fountain overflows. One thought fills immensity. Always be ready to speak your mind and a base man will avoid you. So basically be real outspoken and people, people will leave you, leave you alone. Everything possible to be believed is an image of truth. Everything possible to be believed is an image of truth. No way. The eagle never lost so much time as when he submitted to learn of the crow. <laughs> yeah, again, like, don't let, don't let outside things form you. Let only your natural instincts like like go full force into your natural humanity and then you'll be free it's essentially what he's saying those are the proverbs of hell so let me let me finish these out and then we'll have a chat about them the fox provides for himself but god provides for the lion think in the morning act in the noon eat in the evening and sleep at night well that's just good advice for a day he who has suffered you to impose on him knows you as the plow follows words so God rewards prayers. The tigers of wrath are wiser than the horses of instruction. Expect poison from standing water. You never know what's enough unless you know what is more than enough. Listen to the fool's repro- reproach. It is a knightly title. Kingly. Kingly title, sorry. The eyes of fire, the nostrils of air, the mouth of water, the heart of earth. The weak in courage is strong and cunning. 
The apple tree never asks the beech how he shall grow, nor the lion, the horse, how he shall take his prey. The thankful receiver bears a plentiful harvest. If others had not been foolish, we should be so. The soul of sweet delight can never be defiled. So the, again, there's one that seems to stick out as about his like philosophy mixed in with all of these others like do normal stuff during a daytime. But the soul of sweet delight can never be defiled. Mm-hmm. Anything you take delight in or pursue can never be wronged. Mm-hmm. When thou seest an eagle, thou seest a portion of genius. Lift up thy head. As the, I, I like this one especially. I think it's telling. As the caterpillar chooses the fairest leaves to lay her eggs on, so the priest lays his curse on the fairest joys. So that's the condemnation of like the adherence of the stony law or like robbing our fun. Yep. Right. To create a little flower is the labor of ages. Damn braces and bless relaxes. The best wine is the oldest. The best water is the newest. Prayers plow not, praises reap not, joy laughs not, and sorrows weep not. The head sublime, the heart pathos, the genitals beauty, the hands and feet proportion. As the, I I swear we're almost done with these. (laughs) As the air to a bird or the sea to a fish, so is contempt to the contemptible. The crow wished everything was black, the owl that everything was white. Exuberance is beauty. If the lion was advised by the fox, he would be cunning. Improvement makes straight roads, but the crooked roads without improvement are roads of genius. And this one especially, I think, is the, I think it's the most mm. telling of yeah, all. Yeah, and this is the one, this one's famous too. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like it's quoted in Dorian Gray. I don't think so, but mm-hmm. it feels like something he would say. Sooner murder an infant in its cradle than nurse unacted desires. Where man is na- not, nature is, where man is not, nature is barren. Truth can never be told so as to be understood and not be believed. And then the last one is enough or too much. So all of those together give you a picture of his... The sense of sort of this ethos that he has. Yeah, these are the... This is the ethos of hell. It's the... It's that of like indulgence and 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 giving in to one's desires. And one if one gives in to one's desires, then one is healthy and happy. And, and the why? only reason why you're not healthy and happy now is because you have these outside laws telling you not what to not to do. That you should and be the, doing. And, and the all things the stu- that you delight in, like all of the things that you love are yeah. never to be condemned. And the only reason you feel bad about them is because all these rules from outside, right? If you yeah. throw yourself wholeheartedly into those joys... What can be taken from you? And all our students are listening to this. And they're like, heck yeah, no uniforms. <laughs> well, that's that's the feeling is that this is a really seductive yeah. ethos. Do you think so? Like, I, I think I am, it really I'm is. I'm physically uncomfortable reading this. Like, it's vile. I don't it, know. It, it, it is vile. But that's because, Megby, you are, you have tasted and loved the good. Thanks. Great. The, no, feast, the feast that is offered... This is the metaphor you. But this use. is this is the this is the seductive the seductive words that like. Is it? Um, it's because they're half truths. Oh. Yeah, I, I think that this it's is because human beings were made for glory and beauty and goodness, but you don't get that by by going full throated into your desires. You get that from um, by going back to where to what you were supposed to be created in the first place. It it is so. This is a doctrine of of redefining original sin as human nature. Yeah. Uncorrupt as like human nature as it ought. And we as Christians say this is not human nature as it ought. This is this is corrupted fallen human nature. And he says, well, you're the reason everyone's sad because they can't do all their desirous things. And we say, you give the person over to their desires and they will be even, they will be sad. Right. Yeah. I, I think the reason it's so seductive is because it takes what we feel in a moment it takes those momentary joys and the things that our, our deepest heart desires maybe in, you know, unjustly and says, these are good and indulging in them will bring you wisdom. Mm-hmm. And so we feel that, yes, this is fantastic. What it doesn't say is that throw yourself, as you said, full-throated into your desires and there are some consequences on the, at the other end of that. And even more so, they won't continue to fulfill Right, like if if I go full hilt into my desires, those I'm gonna bump up against emptiness at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is not saying that. He is not saying the correct. He's not saying. He's that. saying that you will be fulfilled. He's saying that fulfillment comes not only fulfillment but wisdom and the full expression of human nature. He's basically like at the beginning of romanticism, where they were, everyone was sort of saying, you know what, we haven't even tried it. Let's try it, but. 
And the Greeks tried it. Right. So, and it seems like we're trying it again. Yeah, we're trying it again. Right? Do, and, do what you want. Be you. Like, it's it's the same ethos again. And depression and anxiety rates are through the roof. Um, so, uh, yeah, he he's sort of saying, like, he's talking about this with, like, the joy and excitement of a newly discovered a newly discovered thing. Like, um, do you know what feels amazing? Like, disobeying your parents. Like, it does, <laughs> right? it feels empowering in sort of uh, uh, the first couple of times. And then, uh, and then as you sort of become numb to your, to your disobedience, um, um, you know. Well, it's seductive to it's be seductive. your own God. Yeah, it's seductive. Right, yeah. to say mm-hmm. like, my will be done, and not only will my will be done, but my will is good for me mm-hmm. and the world. If mm-hmm. everyone followed their own genius and energy, the yeah. world would be awesome. And this is the ethos of Satan in Paradise Lost, is the only thing, what Satan builds his entire existence on is his ability to say no to God uh, and yes to himself. And this is what this is what William Blake is saying, It, but William Blake is agreeing. And in, like, you know, a... An explosion of creativity. He makes a new castle in in hell and a new place for him in his own to dwell, mm-hmm. right? And I, I don't know that it stops here. If you look at Nietzsche, he says kind of the same thing, but in a more ph- philosophical way. Where what man should do is not necessarily follow his own desires, but exert his own will, mm-hmm. right? Do what you know. Do what you will because you can, and don't let anybody tell you not to, right? Take res- full responsibility for the things that you want. And that's, it just seems like s- different versions of the same exact philosophy, which is you are God and you get to do what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so here is a little bit of his history about where he got there. So we just finished with the hell parables and we're, we're roundabouts halfway through almost. I told you it wasn't a very long thing. So here's the next bit. The ancient poets animated all sensible objects with gods or geniuses, calling them by the names and um, adorning. adorning, adorning. Sorry, some of, sometimes it's hard to read. Adorning them with the properties of woods, rivers, mountains, lakes, cities, nations, and whatever their enlarged and numerous senses could perceive. And particularly, they studied the genius of each city and country, placing it under its mental deity, till a system was formed, which took advantage of of and enslaved the vulgar by attempting to realize or abstract the mental deities from their objects. This began priesthood, or thus began priesthood, choosing forms of worship from poetic tales, and at length they pronounced that the gods had ordered such things. Thus man forgot that all deities reside in the human breast. And there is, I think, the most obvious humanism, right? So he's saying our gods came from our, what originally was just poets putting animation in things, Mm -hmm. then eventually those things got abstracted from the things themselves. So it wasn't any longer just a tree with a deity in it. It became a tree deity. Mm -hmm. And then the priesthood came as a way to oppress others. And we all forgot the the real truth was that the deities all came out of our own poetic outflow. Mm -hmm. And that's where all the deities came from, Uh, which is, you know, not a attitude that has necessarily gone away. Uh, I can read the next one. The another, next mem- another memorable fancy. Another memorable fancy. The prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel dined with me, and I asked them how they dared so roundly to assert that God spoke, spake to them, and whether they did not think at the time that they would be misunderstood, and so be the cause of imposition. Isaiah answered, I saw no God, nor heard any, in a finite organical um, perception, but my senses discovered the infinite in everything, and as I was then persuaded... And remain confirmed that the voice of honest indignation is the voice of God. I cared not for consequences, but wrote. Th- so he, he's they got the same kind of thing going where he's like, I didn't hear God, but I saw eternity and then I decided to write things. So he's, a, again, a rebel, right? Mm-hmm. Is that kind of a kind of, yeah. reading? Um, that the voice of honest indignation is the voice of God. Then I asked, does a firm persuasion that a thing is so make it so? He replied, all poets believe that it does, and in ages of imagination, this firm persuasion removed mountains, but many are not capable of a firm persuasion of anything. Then Ezekiel said, the philosophy of the East, there you go, taught the first principle of human perception. Some nations held one principle for the origin and some another. We of Israel taught that the poetic genius, as you now call it, was the first principle, and all the others merely derivative, which was the cause of our despising the priests and philosophers of other countries, and prophesying that all gods would at last be proved to originate in ours, and to be the tributaries of the poetic genius. It was that 
It was this that our great poet King David desired so fervently and invoked so pathetically, saying by this he conquers enemies and governs kingdoms. And we so loved our God that we cursed in his name all the deities of surrounding nations and asserted that they had rebelled. For these opinions, the vulgar came to think that all nations would at last be subject to the Jews. So he turns even the history of the Jewish nation Mm -hmm. into one that is trying to say, look, your gods are ridiculous because really it comes from poeticism. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, that there's, yeah, there's this sort of one abstraction higher, and, the, and that abstraction is this poetic energy of sort of of creation and inspiration. And so the Jews were saying, like, your gods were aberrations of that, mm-hmm. and then everyone misunderstood and thought that they were saying their god is better when they were saying their poetic abstraction was better. This, said he, like all firm persuasions, has come to pass, for all nations believe the Jews' code and worship the Jews' god, and whether greater subje- and what greater subjection can be. I heard this with some wonder and must confess my own conviction. After dinner, I asked Isaiah to favor the world with his lost works. He said none of equal value was lost. Ezekiel said the same as his. I also asked Isaiah what made him go naked and barefoot three years. He answered, the same that made our friend Diogenes the Grecian. I then asked Ezekiel why he ate dung and lay so long in his right and left side. He answered, the desire of raising other men into a perception of the infinite. Um, this the North American tribes practice, and is he honest who resists his genius or conscience only for the sake of present ease or gratification? So we've got the, like, beginnings of kind of a universalism, right? Like, as yes. as Britain understand, hears trickling in, um, you know, uh, texts from the East and probably misunderstandings of North American tribes, um, they begin, it's almost like this, yeah, uh, this this idea that, uh, oh, all, our religious instincts are really just abstractions from something more deeper and primitive in human nature. And um, what the Jews in Israel created and what the North American Indians are, cre- are doing and what the East is doing are just all tapping into this great energy that is human poetic genius yeah and if you've ever read and that's the alchemist right there that's yeah. the sort of the book is follow your inner light and the universe will like give you a join you yeah well yeah we'll be on your side it's, it's um, humanism it's it is it's yeah it's it's a like a it's it's building up a mythos and building up an uh, a mythology of of human perfection or human incorruptibility of human yeah of humanism yeah well um, the only way you can be corrupted is by letting it be stifled that's right. The only way the only way that you will not be a human is if you don't live as hard as you should. <laughs> which so, is why Thomas is so uncomfortable with it. And which is why I think we should all be uncomfortable with it as Christians. It's like this is this is flatly against sort of the orthodoxy. And I think the reason why I get so upset about it is because it's it's not just it is half truths. It is halfway there. Like the so desire is, is is honest. Like human beings were built for satisfaction, which yeah. is, if you hear in this poem, it's a, it's a, it's a desire for satisfaction. And he's getting at something about the will and that we motivate ourselves and we want to accomplish things. But the question is what those things are. Yes, so exactly. To as far as he's concerned, the thing doesn't matter what you accomplish yes. as long as you go, will as you it. will it. Yeah. Which so, is a sort of Nietzsche. Which trivializes, yeah, it just yeah. trivializes all the things that we desire. So um, what are, what, and what is the half truth? So you said there, there are half truths. So what, what is the is true it, part that we should take from He is from this? showing... He's diagnosing the problem that human beings are dissatisfied and we seem to be built for satisfaction. I think somebody who says we're just matter and satisfaction and we don't really want satisfaction is not paying attention to what it means to be a human being. So I think William Blake diagnoses the correct problem of man. We want happiness. We want satisfaction. We feel like things are missing. And then he's then he says the... Um, so now what you should do, the way that you can be satisfied is to go out and seek after satisfactions in the world. Um, this is like Lord Henry and Dorian Gray. Um, the only way to defeat a temptation is to yield to it. And right? give in and, give and in. really entertain it. Um, and so, and the only way to revive the true humanity is to seek new experiences and mm-hmm. indulge the five senses. So this is, so that's, that's the prescription then is to live hedonistically. And I think Christianity at its core has a hedonistic element to it. Like we were built for pleasure and joy. Okay. That's what I was driving at is that 
I think one of the reasons this is so seductive is because it gets at one truth about humanity. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's that there is like certain things that we are, like we are built for imagination mm-hmm. uh, and even explosions of imagination. Mm-hmm. We are built for, like he even kind of hints a couple of times at sexual love, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the greatest thing is to set another before you, right? The nakedness of woman. Sure, sure. Like, and notice that, yeah, sexual love, food, and the beasts have it figured out is, is something in here. Right. And so he's, he's saying like, this is the way to go. But I, and, and men was made for sexual satisfaction, but within the bounds of marriage, right? Uh, when you start spreading it around is when dissatisfaction comes and danger yeah. comes and families are broken. And like, I think, I think just as he tends too far into licentiousness and hedonism, Christians can tend too far the other way, where we worship self-denial as an end in itself, mm-hmm. when it's not, or we condemn things that are naturally good for man for the sake of seeming austere or pious that aren't necessarily worth condemning. Yeah. Like, the having a really is, good yeah. time at a party is not bad. Mm-hmm. It's bad to get super drunk and do things you shouldn't do, but really enjoying friends and having, and like indulging in merriment, mm-hmm. like true merriment, is one thing we were built for. Yeah. And so saying that holy men are those who would never indulge in merriment, I think is is going too far the other way, mm-hmm. too far in the in the direction of uh, not license but legalism. So this it comes down to like a different anthropology, like the Christian anthropology, and the thesis is that within rules and order we actually find human freedom and satisfaction. Chesterton says that the the rules of Christianity are a fence around. A plateau on which we can play. Yes. But take the fence away and, and we you, fall off the edges of the plateau. Yeah. And so then William Blake and sort of almost this romantic uh, thesis of this romantic anthropology is that human beings are repressed and it is only until they can adequately, adequately throw off all rules that repress them that they can truly be happy. And so then you have these two competing opposite views of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, are we getting to why it's called Marriage of Heaven and Hell? Are you going to talk about that? Oh, uh, we'll get there. Okay. Because what you just said mm-hmm. is actually evoked in the very next page. So if you'd like to read the next page. Sure. The ancient tradition that the world will be consumed in fire at the end of 6,000 years is true, as I've heard from hell. But the cherub with his flaming sword is hereby commanded to leave his guard at the tree, at the tree of life. And when he does, the whole creation will be consumed and appear infinite and holy, whereas it now appears finite and corrupt. This will come to pass by an improvement of sensual enjoyment. So basically, the world is going to end and everything will become infinite. But the way we get there is sensual, sensual enjoyment. enjoyment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but first, the notion that... Maybe right about that. Say again. He may be right about the world coming to an end because of <laughs> sensual enjoyment. But, but not, not, by, not leading to us Because we're going to have infinite. VR technology and no one's going go to go to work anymore. Anyway. No, we'll go to work in VR. <laughs> sure. <laughs> no, it's, I, I, well, think about it. If I can, if I can buy one VR thing for all of my employees and they can go and meet in an office and I don't have to actually pay for office space, imagine how much money I'm going to save. I think it is only a amount of time before we are working in VR. Can you have your avatar be whatever you want? Can I be a rabbit? Or is that like not business casual? (laughs) I I wonder (laughs) if there's going to be sort of a business (laughs) etiquette for choosing your avatars. No dinosaurs, dinosaurs no flaming heads. Anyway, sir, keep going. I'll keep it going. But first, the notion that man has a body distinct from his soul is to be expunged. This I shall do by printing in the infernal method, by corrosives, which in hell are salutary and medicinal, melting apparent surfaces away and displaying the infinite which was his. So he's talking about making these plates. Right. If the doors of perception were cleansed, everything, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is, infinite. That's the most, like, I'm on shrooms Mm -hmm. statement in the whole thing. Like, if we just cleanse our doors of perception, we'd see that everything is infinite, right? I, that's the weirdest one. For man has closed himself up till he sees all things through narrow chinks of his cavern. That's a reference to Plato's yeah. allegory of the cave. Yeah, I hate this. Um, <laughs> I, I just, I don't, I don't know why we don't just read Ecclesiastes. Like, so, uh, Dorian Gray is a book you all read with your students, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and Dorian Gray has a, a character who says lots of things that sound really great, but aren't really that great. What's his name? Lord Henry. Lord Henry. Yeah. So, but he, by the end of the book is destroyed. And not, I mean, 
Yes. So things go poorly for Lord Henry. Like, well, the things go poor for Dorian. Dorian. No, Gray. Lord yes. Henry ends up. Oh, fine. It's fine. Yeah. But Dorian, who follow, sorry, Dorian, who follows Lord Henry, is destroyed, consumed. Well, it's yes, because Lord Henry is painted as the devil character. Yep. He says things that he doesn't believe. Right. He well, he's consistently accused of that by Basil the painter, who's mm-hmm. like, "You don't. I don't think you mean any of this." And you talk about being a bad husband, but I don't. I think you are a good one. And he ends up fine. Mm-hmm. And then we but even the get people this, who follow what he does end up not great. So Dorian is innocent at the beginning of the book and then is corrupted literally in a garden by this devil character. There's a lot of Edenic imagery going mm-hmm. on where they're there and he is tempted and Henry installs this philosophy on him that pretty much says beauty and youth are the only things worth having and man could be restored if someone pursued a life of experience and indulgence of the five senses. Basically, this very philosophy that that he is here saying, promoting. Yeah, so this is Lord Henry. So Yeah, yeah. He is like William Blake is essentially Lord Henry. But he's not trying Does Oscar Wilde know that Lord Henry is not a great dude? He must, because the ending of Dorian Gray is Dorian Gray's madness and ugliness. And, At times but, he says it. He says, Henry, you're so terrible, but I can't resist. And then sometimes he is totally impressionable and believes every word that comes out of Henry's mouth. Mm-hmm. So does William Blake know that he's messed up? No. So that's what. Yeah. That's why I'm saying this is dangerous. Because even to say there's a half truth in it means that there's a half falsehood in it. And so if we're going to... This is where literature and ideas get really scary. This is what you all... Graham, your comment at the beginning that whoever he's responding to is the what preempts liberal mainstream... Uh, theology in the 1900s it follows him 150 years after this is written that these ideas embed themselves and then grow over time sure and that's dangerous but we can wear our armor and have our shields and walk through it and like point out why like because um because the lies of the devil so i mean like so with this it's like so yeah so so arrows are going to get shot at us going through this because there are things that aj you said before are seductive why would we put ourselves in that situation so i I have a great answer to this. Inoculation. Rock and roll. And I, that was the exact word I was going to use, right? These are like we, the way we tackle diseases is by getting vaccinations, right? With a weaker version of the disease, right? We are, we train our bodies with some sort of like half flu so that when the real flu shows up, it'll know how to deal with it. And I think we do the same with students. We go through Dorian Gray because at some point our students are going to, and I hope meet Lord Henry. Yeah, they're going to meet they a Lord will. Henry, someone who is winsome, someone who is charming. They seem to have all the answers. They speak eloquently. They're wicked fun at parties. But they have the most hilarious and enjoyable Tumblr page. Yeah, but the truth is that their philosophy, if followed, will lead to death. And we have to do that now before they actually hit it in real life and don't see what's going on, right? We read William Blake. Well, we don't then, read William Blake at school. Well, yeah, but you would read William, William Blake as a let's think about this philosophy and where it ends up and how it's affected everything so that it's not, it doesn't come as I think William Blake intended it as this wonderful rebellion against the other bars of old and have some kid come across it and say, oh my gosh, like indulging in my senses is what I've been missing and then spend his 20s in total debauchery and then end spoiled at 32. I mean, C.S. Lewis wrote The Great Divorce because he's writing that in response to this. The Great Divorce, so he says, the mar- so William Blake's big idea of the marriage of heaven and hell is that at the end of history, this rebellious genius and the and the like stony law are going to somehow be rectified and be be brought back together. And, that's, and so the end of history is going to be like God and the devil making up. Um, in fact, I even think that there is a, um, William Blake wrote a poem where, um, at the end of history, God basically says to the devil, like, all is forgiven. Um, you fought a good fight. Let's go get a drink. And I remember reading that in college thinking, like, that actually kind of does sound like a good philosophy. But then when you – but then – and C.S. Lewis, when he's writing the, the Great Divorce, shows that sort of the silliness, the well-meaning – it's a well-meaning philosophy, but it's – it's um, it, it's it's the wrong diagnosis. So I, I get your – I hear what you're saying, maybe you're like, why, why subject ourselves to this? But if – my sense is, is if we don't understand this, we're going to think the lies of the devil are like rock and roll music, um, when in reality it's it's something that is so pervasive in our culture, this romanticism of your own, you know, just follow your own inner light or that silly alchemist book, um, um, that I feel like um, – I don't, yeah. think I, I don't think I've said this yet. I loved The Alchemist when I read it in high school. But we all did. For but that's the thing. all that's, the reasons. We yeah. all like that yeah. kind of stuff when but we're But I'm young. not. Uh. That's why a lot of people love it now is because it basically says, 
follow your own personal legend. It basically says you're not wrong. You're not broken, Magby. You just got to be more Magby. Yeah. And that's what's going to make you happy. And that's garbage. I just think there is too much to inoculate people against. So imagine that it's not just the uh, the flu, but you need a vaccine for a thousand different diseases because there are more ideas than we could ever expose the students to while they're here. There are things that will develop and change over time that we won't have prepared them for because we can we can never know in 15 years what's going to be the big anti-Christian eh, pick 20 years, pick 30 years. I pick, disagree like, with that. That things don't change over time. I think, yeah, I, I think fundamentally like all of the reasons like eventually I don't I can't even conceive. I, I think setting it up is like what we talk, talked about before, where the ethos of Christianity is that there is freedom within the rules of conforming to your nature of the way God created you versus the freedom comes with throwing off the rules that are supernatural. Like, there's not really a third option from those things. So whatever, what, everything is going to be derivative. Everything anti-orthodoxy is going to be derivative of, of that kind of thing. Maybe. I, yeah, I don't and know I about d- that. I don't know that the goal is to vaccinate them against every single idea, but through doing a few of them, through, I mean, if they read this and they read Dorian Gray, the next time somebody comes up and says like, you know what's awesome, a life of pleasure, they can say, well, I've... Great. But that's why I'm saying Dorian Gray is better than this. I'm saying that Dorian Gray has a morality that's, yeah, that's easier to find than in the... Or this has a morality, but it's being... It's a bad morality. So you're saying because I can... There are read different Dorian ways Gray to present it, these ideas. It turns into a lesson about how terrible it is. Yes, as opposed to presenting all the stuff is awesome. Well, that's the thing is I, I would not present this to a kid and then leave them. I would read through it with them and then talk about how things go. Like, this is why we need sure. good teachers is because sure. read, read in a vacuum, this is incredibly seductive. Right. It's not even seductive just in, in ideas. It's seductive in vision. Like, it's visually beautiful. Maybe let me, let, me re- let me phrase it differently. You all make choices about what you do and don't teach, and this mm-hmm. is not one of the things that you all teach. Correct. And so you all have made a choice at some point to say that other there are other ways to present ideas and teach the students well, and this poem is not a part of that. And I'm, I'm agreeing with you all on that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's it. But, but I mean, so I read this in college, and my reaction to it was in college i wanted the benefits of christianity one of the reasons i wanted to be a, i was a christian was because i wanted the the good things that i saw the order of the universe that it said existed so i wanted these things so i, I, had, I had a desire for the fruits of the christian faith uh, as opposed to just the fear of hell or whatever um, and so when i read this and i saw that there was some attractive things to it but also recognized that in order to do it, I would have to give up Christian faith. It made me realize, okay, so what really is at stake going on? Um, and it was, and it got, to me, it always came back to that question about um, rules and order versus like what I thought, what we sort of call freedom and chaos. Um, so I was probably very fortunate that I read William Blake around the same time as I was really going deep into Lewis and Chesterton, because Chesterton is as witty as Blake, and Chesterton I would like, say can, more so, more so, and Chesterton can eviscerate Blake with with you know with one parable. Like um, the thing that I always that I I even think I wrote in the margins of my Romanticism textbook in the the the, the uh, in Marriage of Heaven and Hell was William Blake's. Um, phrase that said um, before you remove an ancient boundary stone yeah. like ask why it was put there in the first place right. and Blake doesn't seem and is not doing that and so um, um, I think you can sort of see this this folly at least I saw the folly and madness of what William Blake is wanting to do to sort of throw off the shackles and let's yep. enter into a rebellious new future yep. but I mean you can't be a student of history and look back on that ethos and say that it has been good you're making the point you're making the point better than I was. What the idea that you're getting to that I'm also saying another piece of it is that you can inoculate yourself against ideas or you can learn what is right by studying what is wrong mm-hmm. or you can study what is right. Mm-hmm. And so that's my, so yes, Dorian Gray is a helpful book in understanding the dangerous effects of bad ideas, but it also has that internal ethic to it that at least there's something to teach and it's not just saying we're going to read this and then disagree with everything in it. Yeah, but everything, but there's, there's always a danger in reading something. Sure. There's, there's always that danger. Sure. Um, there's a, like every year I'll have a student and you can present them like some glorious, beautiful truth about the world. And it's like, ah, oh, there's no point. Right. 
<laughs> but then imagine that kid with this. He'll, he'll buy it. That's the problem. It. That's what I'm saying. You're agreeing. But, mm, but, I, but think, then, I think the issue with, with – I'm not saying we, we should give kids everything always. I think we, – we've talked about this. There's an appropriate age for certain things. I think perhaps the appropriate age for this is college. But hiding from them yeah. people who honestly oh. believe in an ethos – and, and present it as fully as they possibly can. And then later they go and discover these things is dangerous because they will say, I was not fairly given everything that, like I wasn't, you guys didn't show me that there were other options out there. I want to show them the other option and then show them why it's busted. Sure. I'm saying that there are so many options. Sure. I'm not saying to hide things. I haven't said that, but we choose what we present to the students. And in the same way, again, to the point, this is not something that you all put in front of the students. Uh, we make choices about what we teach and talk about. I, yeah, I don't know. But I wouldn't have understood. We do do romanticism. Yes. And I wouldn't have been able to teach Paradise Lost without understanding, like, why I think a lot of the readings of Paradise Lost are busted mm-hmm. if I didn't know William Blake. Sure. Um, so in many ways, like, so I, I get the tremendous, uh, great uh, um privilege to teach them to, to give them paradise lost the first time they've ever heard it heard right, it right. and i can teach it to them sort of removed from a lot of the contextual grossness imagine a child who doesn't even know the prequels exist and can just watch the first three star wars movies they're a monster like don't we yeah. don't we long for that um it's the same kind of it's the same kind of thing oops sorry i'm losing my microphone so um i, I guess i just don't share the same trepidation of um that the heart that the student can read this and like be lost forever. Um, trepidation. I we're over the, we're over time and I apologize. Trepidation isn't the right word. It's that we have a limited amount of time. And so if we're choosing how to use that time, is this the best use of time or at what point would it, could it be the best use of time? Yeah. Well, I, I was actually thinking and I, I, we, I have to wrap things up, but I was thinking that this would be good to read in conjunction with Dorian Gray. Like, have them read the first little bit, have them read this sort of when they're in the center of the tale, and then have them read the moral at the end. Because that would be seeing the the eth- ethical outcome of this philosophy that is honestly given by Blake, lived out to its end by Dorian. And I think that might be one of the best ways to do it. Um, anyway, we are really up against times here. So, so yes. Um, oh, I, I should say, we're only about two thirds of the way through. We've talked about a lot of the stuff that's valuable in here. I don't know if it's worth finishing up you can finish it up as a listener i will say at one point he kind of converts an angel to his view and then they read the bible together in the infernal viewpoint so it's it's weird you can finish it if you like it is at least pretty to look at so go and i remember correctly the last line of the poem is pretty famous too uh one law for the lion and for the ox is oppression or something like that uh for Um, everything that lives is holy yeah anything um that's william blake uh, not classical, but in many ways um, is a lot of the antithesis or the opposite side of classical uh, and worth reading and worth knowing. Um, yeah, send us emails. You can tweet at us at coolschoolstuff at twitter.net. No, I don't know what it is. Uh, you can email us at veritasacademy.net. You can find our biographies at classicalstuff.net and, uh, and our beautiful visages. Um, you can find all the back episodes online. Um, we thank you for listening and emailing us, and we try to get back to you as much as possible. And this is Graham, AJ, and Thomas signing off. Bye. 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 Bye.